Welcome once again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation of Church History Study with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi folks, we're in Church History Now and we're going to look at the life of Joseph F. Smith as the president of the church. I will get a lot from this. This is still a difficult time for the church. We live in a really peaceful time now, but this was a difficult time and Joseph F. Smith was cut off for the job. So we're going to start off with looking at him now. Joseph F. Smith was born in Far West in 1838 while his father was in prison in Liberty Jail. By the age of five, his father was murdered. His father's death instilled in him the understanding that persecution and sacrifice were central to the Mormon experience. I can't overemphasize that enough. His father's death instilled him the understanding that persecution and sacrifice were central to the Mormon experience. From his mother, he inherited a stubborn temperament and the ability to withstand intense adversity. These traits, combined with later life experiences, created a curious combination of frontier toughness, political sophistication, and religious certainty. Prepare to be the prophet. On October 17, 1901, at age 62, Joseph F. Smith succeeded Lorenzo Snow as the sixth president of the church, after serving as a counselor to four church presidents, including Brigham Young. Called as a full-time missionary at the age of 15 and an apostle at the age of 28, 28 as an apostle, how do you like that? Son of Hiram Smith and nephew of Joseph Smith, his namesake, expert on gospel doctrine and author of the book that bears that name. Yes. At only 64 years of age, he was the first president born to parents who were already members of the church. Lorenzo Snow's sudden death necessitated President Smith's complicated and difficult determination of which property belonged to the Snow estate and the church. He was finally able to do this and the church moved forward. It took him two years from the age of 64 to do that. The B.H. Roberts Affair, after the brief period of comparative goodwill that followed the issuance of the Manifesto and the admission of the state of Utah into the Union, the church again faced serious internal and external problems. Serious. As the 20th century began, the progressive movement was calling the nation's attention to the wrongs, both alleged and real, and also in all aspects of American society. During this time, the media focused on the B.H. Roberts case, directing the attention of the progressive and national leaders in the country once again upon the church and its members. Brigham H. Roberts was one of the church's finest orators, authors, and missionaries of all time, and has become known as the defender of the faith. After serving a mission to St. Louis, where over 60 were baptized and a branch was organized, he was asked to run for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. After receiving permission from the first presidency, he ran and was elected by a landslide. Because he was a polygamist, there was a national outcry against him being seated in the House. Yes. A petition was circulated throughout the country that was signed by seven million people who were against his being seated in the house. 
after being attacked by the national media for months and having his case deliberated on the House floor, the decision was finally made to not allow him entrance, and he returned to Utah unseated. I like that. That's against the Constitution of the Church, but they did it because he was a polygamist. The Reed Smoot hearings. Reed Smoot, a successful businessman and founder of the Utah Republican Party, was called to the apostleship in 1900. President Joseph F. Smith gave him permission to run for the U.S. Senate, which he did successfully. He served as a U.S. Senator 30 of his 41 years in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. His election caused the Church to become embroiled in national media attention and Senate hearings again. Senator Elder Smoot eventually became one of the most respected, seasoned, and influential men in Washington, D.C. However, that did not come without a fight. The same people, fears, and opposition movements came to bear on having him removed from the Senate that had successfully removed B.H. Roberts four years earlier. Senator Smoot was accused of practicing polygamy, which was not true, and he was able to prove it. In addition, President Joseph F. Smith, Elder James E. Talmadge, Francis M. Lyman, B.H. Roberts, and other leaders were called back to Washington, D.C. to testify in the hearings. The church was once again drugged through the mud of political and public opinion. Elder Smoot was accused of being part of a group of 15 men who controlled the state of Utah. The Senate estimated that petitions opposing Smoot may have contained as many as 4 million signatures. Protests poured in from various groups throughout the nation, particularly patriotic, evangelical Protestant, and women's groups. Newspapers and other organs of public opinion line up both for and against Smoot. Undoubtedly, the greatest national attention focused on the question of polygamous cohabitation and plural marriages. In the end, even though ten of the ten senators seven of the ten. seven of the ten senators on the committee voted for the removal of Smoot from office, forty-two senators were in favor, and only twenty-eight were against him. When President Roosevelt also supported him, he was in. Smoot's biographer Milton R. Merrill argued that the attacks were on Smoot personally and not on the church. However, the hearings also attacked the secular power of the church and its leadership. Instead of just investigating Smoot, the hearings involved a virtual investigation of every activity of the church since 1890. America's problem with the Latter-day Saints was not simply or even primarily a matter of unlawful action, but conflicting authority. The Latter-day Saints appealed to the law of their God, given through modern prophets to justify the resistance to the law of the land. When Latter-day Saint morality, affected by priestly order, confronted American morality, affected by present legal establishment, the philosophical underpinnings of the First Amendment became, were made explicit, and the conflict arose between the nation with the soul of the Church and the church was the soul of the nation. No one probably made it obvious that by not establishing any religion, the Constitution had supported every religious authority over the state, over the believers of the state's authority over the citizens. And so the Smoot hearings brought to light the fact that 
the Constitution placed civil authority above religious authority, but the Latter-day Saints would have a religious authority above civil authority. That was the problem. This moot hearing represented the last of several failed attempts to rid the nation of the Mormon problem. When the church started its beginnings, Mormon mobs had catalyzed its movement from New York to Ohio and then to Missouri. Their two religious antagonism and fears of Mormon control over land and politics led to violence. The governor of Missouri considered the Mormons such a threat that he issued a order against them in 1938 and drove them from the state and his militia. Subsequently, Illinois officials took actions that precipitated the murder of Church Fairfield Smith in 1944 and the explosion of his followers once again by local mobs. Illinois had decided the story, however, in 1860, U.S. Representative John Alexander McClellan explained the Mormons were expelled from the state because they were willing, unwilling to submit to the laws because in turn that trembled the authority of the state underfoot, they were overcome. The maximum then was, and still is, rule or ruin. So the real problem really was between church and state. Is church over state or state over church? And that was the real that was the real problem from the beginning. There were indeed two organizational as opposed to uh, creedal creedal uh, reasons for the stubborn antagonism between the Latter Day Saints and the rest of America. First, the Latter-day Saints preferred theocracy to democracy, and hence did not accept the major premise upon which Protestant, Protestantism had crafted religious liberty in America. They did not subordinate their church to the nation-state, and they conflated their local state with their church. Second, their theology dictated their morality. This, too, was a reversal of the American Protestant denominational form that based its religious commitments on morality or the nature of Christian life instead of theological creed. The moral commitments of American Protestantism gave its churches common cause, notwithstanding creedal differences. Indeed, this shared sense of right religion undergirded the condemnation of Mormonism as not a religion but an immoral and quasi-criminal conspiracy. <laughs> That's the way they saw us. Some, some still do. In the late 1840s, the Latter-day Saints went to the Rocky Mountains, outside the territorial boundaries of the United States, because the extremity of their religious differences made coexistence with their neighbors impossible. Apostle Lawrence Pratt spoke for many, for many in his church when he said, quote, It is with the greatest joy that I have fasted this republic. If our Heavenly Father will deliver us out of the hands of the bloodthirsty Christians, of the United States and will not suffer any more to, to be of us to be martyred to gratify their holy piety, I for one will be very thankful. Plus we may have had to suffer much in the land of Israel, but liberty in a solitary place in any desert is far more preferable than martyrdom in these pious states. The feeling is mutual, of course. Objections to, to overt violence against the Mormons were few and have no practical effect, and muted it by agreement with its ends. Presbyterian New York Observer, for example, denounced Mormons and Mormonism's anti-Mormon, Missouri's anti-Mormon mobs as, quote, wholly at war with the genius of other institutions, conclude that perhaps, however, it was the only method which would have, which could have been effectively put in practice to get this odious description of population out of the way. Wow. In addition to being criminalized, the Latter-day Saints were universal objects of ridicule and scorn. Burlesque treatments in plays and romantic novels made the Mormon man a symbol of unrestrained and predatory sexuality. Mormon women, 
a dupe and sexual toy of a Rocky Mountain Harlem, and Mormon children, the abused and deformed offspring of monstrous parents. Gender stereotypes and racial slurs were freely applied. An entire generation of Latter-day Saints, including Reed Smoot, matured in this climate of antagonism and shame. Eventually to make peace with Protestant America in the 20th century, the Latter-day Saints would have to come to terms with their deviations from the American Protestant idea of a church. That is the most important point I made today. To make peace with Protestant America, we would have to come to terms with our deviations from the American Protestant idea of a church. President Smith used his considerable power within the church to press for engagement and even change according to the American idea and the U.S. Constitution. Eventually the church, its leaders, and Elder Smoot were vindicated and he was able to take his seat in the Senate after four years of excruciating public hearings. In addition to the careful arguments provided by church leadership, political factors also contributed. Elder Smoot was a Republican, and national Republican leaders like President Roosevelt were afraid that they might lose a Republican vote in Utah. They would have. Throughout the hearings, however, it became increasingly obvious to the first presidency that the general populace of the United States perceived church leaders as trying to circumvent the law. They were accused of not being serious in their efforts to end plural marriage. On April 6, 1904, after deliberation and prayer, and in response to these allegations, President Joseph F. Smith issued a statement that has become known as the Second Manifesto. It declared that any officer of the church who solemnized a plural marriage, as well as the participating couple, would be excommunicated everywhere in the world. Unfortunately, two apostles refused to comply and resigned from the Quorum of the Twelve. John W. Taylor was excommunicated for continuing to perform plural marriages. Matthias Kelly remained faithful and was allowed to serve a mission to England, even though he was never reinstated into the Quorum of the Twelve. Their resignation signaled that the practice of plural marriage really was over. And so, we have a U.S. government dictating our morals, U.S. <clears throat> government dictating our policies, and the U.S. government dictating our, our uh, practices and our doctrine. And so people say, why, why did the church change? The church didn't change. The government made us change. We had to become friends with the government. And that, unfortunately, meant a lot of things that were negative for the church, but that's what happened. The defining, or rather differentiating, characteristic of the church throughout the 19th century was plural marriage. That's the truth. President Smith understood that incident to the Second Manifesto Members of the church needed something to replace plural marriage that would not only define them, but help differentiate them from other Christians. And so? Since 1880, he had been promoting the first vision. He was responsible for its inclusion in the 1880 edition of the Pearl of Great Price. And he now saw it as an answer to this concern. 
James Allen, who published the most extensive study of the first vision, notes. Now, this would surprise many of you, but remember, during the 19th century, our church was practicing plural marriages, so this was not important. It's not the 20th century that the first vision became important in taking its stand in the doctrine of the church. The first vision was not used to teach the doctrine of the Godhead in a church meeting until 1883. However, it began to receive church-wide usage after the Smoot hearings first used in Sunday school manuals in 1905, first used in priesthood manuals in 1909, first used in missionary tracts in 1920, and in church histories in 1912. This may be surprising to many of you, but it's because it just wasn't important. The church was a primary church in the 19th century. After it put that away, it had to choose something else to be its narrative, and it chose the first vision to be its narrative. New emphasis on the first vision maintained a sense of religious difference and provided the equally necessary sense of internal cohesion and historical continuity for members of the church. Significantly, the first vision changed the arena of conflict from social and political to theological. That is important. This placed LDS at odds only with other churches, not the state and shifted the battle from issues over public morality and church practices, orthopraxy, to theological beliefs, orthodoxy. Administrative Modernization by 1908, by 1908, the church moved from a barter system to a money economy. It was able to do this primarily by paying off its debts and because tithing donations increased. This change was significant because most church income came from tithing, not its business interests, which as I have shown were primarily failing. In addition, the change was important because it signified the church was accepting the economic system of the external world. And it was a huge step towards the bureaucratization of church administration. So not only are we becoming like the world doctrinally, Becoming like the world business in other ways as well. We're becoming more a world church. During this time, bishops were expected to serve an indefinite tenure. Many served their entire lives after their call. Church policy allowed only five reasons for their release. Moving, death, old age, lack of harmony in the ward, or disobedience. The release of a bishop became a wrenching experience since if the bishop had not moved, died, or been called to a higher position, members often presumed that he had failed in his personal or ecclesiastical life. How terrible, huh? Stake presidents were expected to coordinate affairs of the wards, promote church programs, serve as a liaison with general authorities, and otherwise run the state. For example, the Salt Lake Stake had 37 wards, and President Cannon devoted more than three-quarters of his time to his stake. As in the case with the bishops, a release seemed too many to suggest either transgression or incapacity. One president, for example, was finally released in 1902 because he could not conduct a meeting or even announce the hymn correctly. Note that the Salt Lake State had 37 wards. How would you like to be the state president of a, of a state that had 37 wards wow. for your whole life? That's amazing, isn't it? 
In addition, the extent to which the auxiliaries and wards replace the general church as the primary community for most members by 1900 cannot be overstated. The extent to which the auxiliaries and the wards replace the general <clears throat> church as the primary community by 1900 cannot be overstated. Membership in the auxiliaries was voluntary and many belonged to none. Attendance at sacrament meeting was low, 15% compared to today's standards. Most members perceived the primary community to be the church, and so meeting attendance was not a priority. As a result, the elders, high priests, and other quorums held regular meetings for everyone living in the ward. If a priesthood holder refused to attend, the quorum leader reported them to the high council, who may have held a church court to consider apostasy. The 70s quorums tried to lead out in this display of activity, but they were met with opposition from their bishops and stake presidents. For example, one change they proposed was changing their meetings from Monday night to Sunday morning, which resulted in a three-hour discussion and finally approval. Perhaps the most notice noticeable change with the new priesthood movement was increased activity. Attendance at weekly priesthood meetings, which only 5% of the wards had been holding before this time, increased from 16% to 18%. Sacrament meeting attendance increased from 14.5% to 17%. Ward teaching increased from 42% to 63%. This may seem like a poor showing today, but prior to this time, attendance at these meetings was not seen as an important part of church membership or activity. Isn't that interesting? Attendance of meetings do not seem as, part of, as an important part of church activity. Media attacks. When Thomas Kearns later lost his seat in the Senate, he blamed church leaders, accusing them of being a monarchy that still permitted its favorites to enter into polygamy. <laughs> After returning to Utah, he revived the anti-Mormon American Party in Salt Lake, purchased the Salt Lake Tribune and hired President George Q. Cannon's excommunicated son, Frank, as the editor. Cannon's attacks on the church were so vicious, he eventually lost credibility and moved to Denver, but not until he had done more damage to the church's national reputation than the Smoot and Roberts hearings. Combined. President Smith chose not to respond to the incessant attacks of Kearns and Cannon, in the local and nationals press. Jumping on the bandwagon, four national magazines published spurious and venomous reports about the church. To offset this, President Theodore Roosevelt published an article in a national magazine extolling the virtues of the Latter-day Saints. Isn't it interesting? Our only friend was the President of the United States. This helped quell the anti-Mormon influence and perception in the U.S. However, President Roosevelt's article was not printed in England, where the persecution was so bitter that LDS missionaries were beaten, tarred and feathered, and otherwise abused publicly. The Britons were so infuriated over the Mormons due to the continued bad press, Parliament considered a motion to expel them from Great Britain. Only through the efforts of a young Winston Churchill were the missionaries allowed to remain, 
although under extreme circumstances. So two of our heroes were politicians, President Roosevelt and, and uh, um, uh, Winston, Churchill. Winston Churchill. And so we did have help with polit from politicians back then. Church leaders would never remove themselves completely from politics. General authorities were both religious and community leaders. Second, they exhibited conflicting political preferences openly. Third, church leaders feared alienating Gentiles. Fourth and most profound was general authority saw themselves as leaders in all moral and social areas. That makes sense, doesn't it? For example, when President Smith endorsed Taft in the October 1912 Improvement Era, it caused an immediate furor. The immediate result of the Taft endorsement was twofold. First, the Republican and Democratic parties discussed fusion. Second, President Smith published the idea that everyone held views, but none were official church views. The fallout was a mixed review, even among general authorities. While some general authorities thought President Smith's remarks were to meant that members of the church could take counsel of any matter they deemed fit, others heard his remarks as criticizing Elder B. H. Roberts' talk completely. Church leaders continued to insist the church was not involved in politics. General authorities were, however, politically active. In, a direct, in an address to the world, church leaders renounced any claim to political dictation but did reserve the right to defend the church. Nevertheless, Joseph F. Smith endorsed Taft in a church publication, and some church leaders like George F. Richards continued to insist on the need to sustain authorities in temporal, political, and religious matters. During this time period, several important developments helped improve the image of the church and allowed us to tell our story better. The establishment of the Visitors Bureau on Temple Square, the predecessor to the Visitor Center. The acquisition of several church history sites, including the Joseph Smith Senior Farm and Sacred Grove, the Hill Camorra, Sharon Vermont Birthplace of Joseph Smith, Carthage Jail, 25 of the 63-acre temple lot in Jackson County, Missouri, as well as the temple site in far west Missouri. B. H. Roberts became the premier church historian during the church's first century by publishing two important multi-volume works. First, The Comprehensive History of the Church, six volumes which chronicled the story of the church to that time. Second, The History of the Church by Joseph Smith, which was a documentary history utilized compiled Joseph Smith documents. Emmeline B. Wells. In addition to the efforts of various church leaders, the sisters also did much to improve the church's public image. Sister Wells, a Utah suffragette, represented the church at the World's Fair during the National Conference of Women. She also spoke at the International Conference of Women in London, England, in 1910, she was called as the General Relief Society President of the Church. So it's difficult to say that the church has completely emerged from the 
challenges of the turn of the century, but Joseph Smith tried his hardest to solve the problems that were there. The church did grow and in, in expand in a lot of ways, and, and a lot of things happened to help improve the image of the church. Uh, while still suffering a little bit of the challenges of the rich materials, etc., it's my hope and prayer that we can gain insight into this and learn how to deal with the world that we live in while still retaining our faith in the gospel. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being with us today for another segment of Dr. Bartholomew's insightful review of aspects of church history. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in church history with Dr. Bartholomew.